Pope Francis said immediately after the Pennsylvania grand jury report that all baptized Catholics have a role to play in the ecclesial and social change of the church. I took those words to heart, and I think that all lay Catholics can bring their creativity, their expertise, their talents to the church and thinking really creatively and together about a way forward. This is Beliefs, an exploration of ideas behind the news of religion. I'm Bill Baker. The Catholic sex abuse crisis has taken its toll on the victims, the faithful, and members of the clergy. Deliver Us is a new podcast from Jesuit America Media, hosted and executive produced by Maggie Van Dorn. The producer is Eloise Blondio. Here's how it begins. It was a Saturday evening when Father Mike, a priest I'd known my whole life, stood in front of our church and made a shocking confession. Fourteen years ago, he said, I transgressed the boundaries of a teenage boy. I was reminded of this recently when my mom emailed me a list a list of all the priests in our area who'd been accused of sexually abusing children. I opened the attachment and scrolled down the grid of faces to the one I knew I'd recognize. Welcome. Welcome to our program, Maggie. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Now tell us, how did all this happen? How did you wind up making a podcast like this? I think like so many people, I was really disturbed by the Pennsylvania grand jury report that came out in August of 2018. And as a Catholic, I was wondering what I could do uh, in response to it. I had so many questions about what the church had done since 2002, whether it had made any progress since Spotlight's investigation. Um, And I also had a background in podcasting. So I thought, why not combine the questions that I have with the tool set that I have available to me and make a podcast that explores uh, what the Catholic Church has done, what it has failed to do, and how it can continue to grow to a more complete justice and healing. Now, you interviewed in your podcast Melinda, who is a famous journalist who has written on the subject and said, I'm a Catholic and basically I've had enough. I can't keep going. You took a different approach in your life and in your journalism. I did. And I think it's important to say that um, you can be a faithful Catholic and have any type of response. But um, for me, and I talk about this in the podcast, um, my faith has, has not really been grounded in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Uh, it has been grounded in my immediate parish, in the Jesuit Catholic University I attended, in so many of the people that I've had the chance to work with in ministry. And so for me, uh, being Catholic is so much more than the abuse crisis. And yet, I, I realized I had to own that this abuse crisis was a part of the same church. There weren't two different churches. There wasn't just a, a true holy church and then an imperfect corrupt church, that, that they were one in the same. Um, and so um, I, I just I felt like I had a moral imperative um, to respond as a Catholic. I also think that um, if there is hope for healing within the church, that 
it of course has to come from within. It's interesting. One of the facts that you bring out in your podcast is uh, is the scale of of the abuse, and the scale of the abuse is also measured in percentages of priests who were abusers, and the number is something like three percent. Uh, and you compare that with one other religions, and of course. Now there have been um, significant reports of Southern Baptist abuses in very, very large numbers uh, and other faiths and all, and all other faiths. But really, the most abuses are not in religion. Uh, and there were figures like 10 to 30 uh, percent in homes, in families, in, in public society. Uh, so if you put the abuse in that perspective, it, it is one terribly sad, but also uh, informative. Mm-hmm. Um, the statistics around this are really difficult and complicated for a few reasons, right? Um, one of the reasons is that survivors don't report often until decades later, and so it's, it's hard to get an accurate sense of of the rates of sexual abuse. Um, the John Jay College of Criminal Justice did an extensive study that revealed that between 1950 and 2002, uh, there's three to 6% of Catholic clergy who are credibly accused of sexual abuse. Um, the 10 to 30% that has been cited is for society at large. And that is not, it's, it's hard to actually verify those numbers. And that's also who has reported abuse, not necessarily 10 to 30% of, of, um, individuals in society are abusers. So even those statistics are really hard to put up against one another. But what we do find is that child sexual abuse and sexual abuse in general is far more pervasive in society than I think most of us realize. The producer for America Media uh, is Eloise Blondio. Eloise, how did Jesuit America Media get involved in this project? So... um, we are a media ministry, a Jesuit media ministry, so uh, America was already producing some podcasts and at the same time reporting on uh, the sex abuse crisis and the latest wave of news uh, on our website and in the pages of our magazine. After the wave, the latest wave of news in the summer, Maggie came to us and she said, look, I'm a lay Catholic woman who has all of these questions and I really want you to help me answer them. Um, And it was a great partnership because um, I think, first of all, uh, we really appreciated Maggie's expertise in audio, but also we have an organization full of people who are very well connected and very well placed to help to answer those questions. So actually the team that came together to produce the podcast Deliver Us um, included two priests. Um, who work, two Jesuit priests who work at America, um, some additional producers from uh, Spoke Studios, um, where Maggie is, and um, another lay Catholic woman editor who's an executive editor, Kerry Weber, at um, America. So it's just this really wonderful team full of lay Catholic women, priests, and also non-Catholics who have this audio expertise and could tell us, hey, you're not being clear there, or that's an assumption you need to spell out for us. It's a really well done podcast, and we'll be giving you the links to that very shortly, because I think this one is critical to listen to. 
But um, uh, you have a number of very interesting people on the podcast, and one is a young Jesuit priest who talks about the, a subject that often comes up, celibacy. Let's listen to that. What is your reaction when you hear the argument made that celibacy contributes to child sexual abuse? I have a lot of reactions. The first one is sympathy, actually. I really want to listen to people who are making that argument well. Because every argument emerges from life experience. These people are not saying this for no reason. I think that most people who are making this argument have seen unhealthy celibate living and are saying, hey, there might be something going on here. That's my first reaction. My second reaction is um, I feel a little wounded by that question. And I don't mean to throw stones, but I know in my own experience the depth of beauty that this has brought into my life and the way that my own celibate chastity has allowed me to give my heart away to people who have benefited from it. Maggie, celibacy is the subject that is frequently brought up in the Catholic Church saying, well, if there weren't celibacy, maybe there would be there would be no sexual abuse. You pretty well disproved that, but I'd like to hear what what you learned from your research. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think if you look at the data, you'll see that sexual abuse happens actually more often in the non-celibate population because it happens in families um, where where people have not taken a vow of celibacy. The John Jay study that I referenced earlier also has disproven that um, with four years of research. It's still, I think, an interesting question and one that a lot of people are asking because we don't really understand celibacy very much, I think, as lay people especially. Um, and so it seems to be some kind of aberrant sexuality if you haven't sat down and, and spoken with anyone about how they live their celibate life. We spoke with three men who had gone through seminary formation and had at least attempted to live celibately for a time. One of those three men, um, Patrick Gothman, ultimately left seminary and did not become a priest. So that's important to say. But in talking to one of these men, uh, a Jesuit, Patty Gilger, um, he is able to articulate some of the great uh, pain and beauty that comes with choosing a celibate life. And that was really important for us to to share his story and his narrative. because it's not often that we just sit down and ask someone, how is your celibate life going? Um, it's actually not a question that the church has asked of seminarians and of priests. Um, of course, there is the assumption that you live celibately, um, but uh, what does a healthy celibate life look like? What does a healthy sexuality look like uh, within the priesthood? And that is something that we found in talking to all of these three men who've lived celibately that needs to be discussed far more often and in greater depth than it has been in the past. There are some amazing interviews in this, and one of those is asking a priest, tell me about your celibate life. And there was a term that was brought up called abnegation. And that term, uh, I guess, means, uh, what does it mean? (laughs) 
So I think um, Patty used the term to describe how in in every, in lots of different forms of, sec- of sexuality and in um, relationships, there is an abnegation. You have to give something up. And he says that in his celibate life, you know, he gives up um, the hopes that he once did have as a young man of a wife and of children. Um, but he gains something else. He gains uh, the community that he serves as a priest. And he also said um, to Maggie, you know, I don't think I'm the only person who's had to give something up in my relationship. I think married couples, they, they give something up too. And um, I can learn from them as a priest. And, you know, perhaps we're not so different after all. He says that um, the pains that he experiences as a celibate priest are directly analogous to the pains that a married couple might experience after a long marriage, right? That that you are giving up some aspects of your sexuality or expression when you're committing to a monogamous relationship. Uh, Deliver Us is a season of podcasts on the subject of basically is there hope? What's the future uh, in the Catholic Church of, uh, and of solving this sexual abuse problem? I don't want to give anything away because there's really not too much we can give away, but it's very important. Is, do you feel comfortable that there is a solution, that the church is going in the right direction, uh, Maggie, and that there, is, that there is hope and that people will come again to feeling comfortable that the church is what it has always said it was. Well, all of the data confirms that there is hope because the church is a much safer place today than it was in 2002 and in the decades prior. Um, And that is because of the reforms that the bishops responded with in Dallas in 2002. Um, Those reforms are, are formally called the Dallas Charter, and they have implemented... Um, safe environment training, background checks for for priests. Um, they have a zero tolerance policy, meaning that any priest who is credibly accused is immediately removed from ministry. So with these policies and guidelines in effect, we have seen, um, one, that there has been a, a dramatic reduction in abuse, but also when abuse has been reported, it has been dealt with swiftly. So I think when you just look at the history over the past 17 years, the church has made progress on this on this issue. That being said, uh, the Dallas Charter is not perfect, and many people have rightly pointed out some of the limitations that, that exist there. Um, and, and chief among them is holding bishops accountable. So the Dallas Char- Charter was focused on on priests, um, but haven't it hasn't looked so much at uh, bishops' mishandling or mismanagement of priests who had abused in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, so that is a live question and issue right now. But then I think a follow-up to that, Pope Francis said immediately after the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report that all baptized Catholics have a role to play in the ecclesial and social change of the church. Uh, I took those words to heart. And I think that all lay Catholics can bring their creativity, their expertise, their talents um, to the church and thinking really creatively and together about a way forward. Eloise, your comments on that. So just to what Maggie's saying, there are two pieces, I think, um, that we need to think about um, of the current 
crisis that we're in. And that type of crisis is different to the type of crisis that ensued in 2002. Um, so today, we do see that um, the church is safer, like Maggie said. But the part that um, people are still very much uh, wanting change on is that they don't feel that we know what happened all those years ago pre-2002 so we want to find out we want those stories to to be surfaced we'd like the names even if the abusers um, have died since died we'd like to know what those names are um, and I think people really want to see um not only abusers held accountable, but the people who perhaps enabled cover-up to be held accountable. And I think that's a distinction which has really um, come to light um, just in the past um, summer. In your podcast, we heard uh, the journalist Melinda Henneberger saying she's had it with the church and she's leaving. How much of that has happened? Have, have the numbers of the church, which is the biggest Christian religion uh, in the world and in the U.S., uh, have there been large reductions in the numbers of uh, members of the Catholic Church? I mean, the from the numbers that we do have, we know that that we are seeing people leave. Uh, we are seeing more people identify as nuns and not affiliate themselves with the Catholic Church. But we are also seeing a lot of, especially in the United States, people, uh, immigrants who are Catholics moving into the country and which kind of contributes to the numbers in a different way. I, I do not know of any data which tells us specifically how many people have left because of the abuse crisis, but it certainly does not you know, make for a strong, healthy church um, to have this type of news and this type of distrust in um, church leadership. Maggie, what about the church leadership aspects? You discussed the issue of the bishops. Of That has not really been yet addressed. It was addressed, uh, it appeared that it was going to be addressed, and then the Vatican said something that we should put a hold on it for a few minutes. We don't seem to really understand why that was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I think you're referencing the conference in Baltimore last fall. Um, yeah, so the bishops were gathering for their annual conference, and they were going to be voting on concrete measures about the sexual abuse crisis in the United States. And at the very last minute, Cardinal DiNardo, who is the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, had received a letter from Rome um, asking them to postpone, to hold off on, on this vote. And uh, this was a bombshell for so many Catholics because here in the United States, we feel as though there could be nothing more pressing than responding to this. Um, it will be interesting to see... Um, on February 21st through the 24th, there's going to be a summit, a Vatican summit in Rome, and all the heads of the Episcopal conferences are gathering there to talk about the sexual abuse crisis. Um, one thing I think that might be interesting to think about is um, that the Catholic Church is a global church. And it seems as though Pope Francis and uh, maybe the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith uh, would like to see these guidelines and policies and practices implemented in a in a consistent way, and that you know the the American Church is not in isolation from the Church throughout the world. Would you 
Would you agree with me? Yeah, so I think um, the United States is definitely having its own reckoning with its legacies of abuse. But we do know that that is also happening in other parts of the world and in India. Um, in particular, we've heard about um, the abuse of women religious. And um, I think what we really want to see come out of this summit is um, some policies or some guidelines that can really help the global church. Um, the Dallas Charter, which we spoke about earlier, were guidelines um, implemented to protect children in the church in 2002. That was only in the United States. So in some ways, um, we would like to see, make sure that those changes are happening elsewhere too. Um, and we really, and maybe they're going to be different solutions for different um, parts of the world. But this, um, this global meeting is a really important starting point. One of the things, Maggie, about your podcast that is so powerful, well, the whole thing is powerful, but there are personal stories. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a very powerful story of a woman and her dealing with sex abuse. Uh, we're going to hear that clip now. 25 years after it happened, in, in 1985, I was being treated by a doctor who sent me to a psychoanalyst, and I thought that was very strange at the time. But he talked to me a lot about my childhood, and he actually uncovered the abuse, and I began to speak about it. And he told me I should go and tell somebody in the church. And I did. I went to a priest in my parish and I sat down. It was very, very difficult because I'd only spoken to the doctor, nobody else. And I spoke to this priest in my parish, a man I knew very well. And I tried to tell him about it. And uh, his answer was that um, it was probably my fault. And I was now forgiven for what I had done. I had tempted this poor priest and uh, I could go away now and forget about it because I was forgiven. Unfortunately, that response, the effect it had on me was to totally shatter me completely. I had just begun to believe that I'd been abused and it wasn't my fault when I had all my prior beliefs about it being my fault and being guilty completely um, backed up by this priest. So I didn't go back to the doctor and I just buried it all again. I spent another 10 years before I spoke about it again. That is a clip from Mari Collins, who is an Irish abuse survivor. Uh, Mari Collins is also really well known because she was invited by Pope Francis uh, to sit on the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. In really, really, this was one of the first things that Pope Francis did in his pontificate. She has been a really strong advocate for reforms within the church and. Um, and just a, a really strong voice on this. So we were really, really happy to have her on the podcast. Um, but also, I, I think for me personally, just to hear her own account of what happened to her. Um, she is not the only survivor you will hear on Deliver Us. You'll also hear from at least six other survivors. But um, we really thought it was important to recenter the narratives of survivors because for decades, uh, they were just not a part of the conversation. They were not factored in. They were, they were ignored um, or dealt with quietly. And so Deliver Us is bringing those, those voices back to the center. Eloise? 
what is important about listening to those stories is it really reminds you how urgent it is to address those questions that we are trying to raise in the podcast. Like, why did this happen? What might be the cause? And what is the way forward? Those questions make a lot more sense when you're hearing um, really in detail um, what has happened to real people and how it's affected their lives. There was an interview in the first segment uh, with an ecclesiologist that's a person who studies how, I guess, how the church works uh, and has interfaced with society over time. And there was an important question asked by you, Maggie. And the question was, in the over two millennia of the existence of the Roman Catholic Church, or of the Catholic Church, uh, has there been anything quite of this scale? And the answer was, not exactly. Right? There has been corruption within the Catholic Church. I think actually the Protestant Reformation is an example that comes to mind for most people. But Brian Flanagan, the ecclesiologist that I spoke with, uh, takes us back to the 13th century, which seems like a really long time ago. And you might wonder, what are, what are the parallels you know, that we can learn from? But what he says is there is a lot of corruption in the hierarchy of that day. And uh, St. Francis and um, St. Dominic, uh, a lot of these saints who were actually started or part of uh, mendicant or begging orders were part of the church's reform in that day. And their reform consisted in being authentic to the gospel and patterning their lives more closely off Jesus and the apostles. And the, the most key thing that I took away from from Brian's um, historical insight there was that these mendicant orders of, of priests were successful because they were able to live in the cracks of the institution. They were able to live creatively within uh, a church that had a lot of corruption in it and that they didn't spend so much time trying to directly confront the church or to burn it to the ground or to run away from it, but that they actually worked in and through the church by giving faithful witness to the gospel. Um, and so I, I think there's something really radical about that. And I do think it's something that we see in the Catholic laity today, a desire to live authentically, to to challenge what we're seeing in terms of, of corruption and cover-up, of course, um, but to think creatively about renewal within the church. In a sense, maybe that's what you, you two women are doing. I'd like to ask you, Eloise, we've talked now about this very important podcast. Will you tell us how people can get it, how they can listen to it, and what they should expect when they hear it? Yes. So there are lots of different ways to listen. Um, we have a website, deliveruspodcast.org, where you can go and find um, our show notes and our episodes will live there, along with some a little bit more information of what happened behind the scenes. But also if you search Deliver Us in any of your podcast apps, so if you're on, on a Apple Podcasts or on uh, Google Podcasts, um, it should uh, pop up for you there. And we're also on Spotify. So it should be very easy to find us. No one has an excuse not to listen. But what to expect? Um, I think Maggie's voice is really an important guiding voice throughout this journey of the season. And um, I think it's a very relatable voice too. Um, as a woman in the church asking 
where do we go from here and what even happened. We've worked really hard to include a lot of different voices to answer those questions so you can expect to hear from survivors, from experts, from um, theologians, from reporters um, to help you uh, figure out your own answers to those questions too. Eloise, Maggie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Our guests were Maggie Van Dorn and Eloise Blondio of their new podcast, Deliver Us. New episodes will be released throughout the spring. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jonathan Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker, and thanks for listening.